Well, good morning to you all. This is uh, the first uh, opportunity that I've had to be back in your fellowship this uh, particular year. Kathy and I spent a couple of weeks out in Colorado with our kids, and uh, it was a noisy household with a couple of little ones. And I'm glad to be back. I also want to say something about our annual meeting this week. Um, I want to take this opportunity to thank the church for affirming me as um, an elder, to continue as an elder here at Lockwood Community Church. And I think on behalf of all the people who were affirmed at the meeting, we're grateful and thankful uh, that we have an opportunity to serve a great bunch of people. So I appreciate your confidence, and um, you, you, um, we're going to give it a good shot. Um, I tell you that. Would you open your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you have a Bible with you this morning, it's about 400 or so pages into the Bible, 1 Samuel. And as you're, as you're turning there in the scriptures, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of questions that I asked myself as I meditated on this passage. I kind of like the beginning of the new year. Uh, it's a time of reflection for me. Uh, it's also a time of the year when I get a year older. So um, it's a kind of a sobering time as well for me. But here are my questions this morning. First Samuel chapter 7. My first question is, what do you need to know about God? What do you need to know about God? And by extension, I would say, what do we as a church, what do we as a church need to know about God? Well, as I meditated on that question, my answers were threefold. First of all, I, I believe that we need to know that God is with us. And the Bible says, if God is not with us, don't, don't take us up from this place. It's possible to do things and go places without God in our lives. But that's not what a church ought to be about. We must live with the realization that God is in our midst, that God is with us. Secondly, I think all of us want to know that God is reliable. God is faithful. We can count on him. We don't know what this year is going to hold for us, whether health issues or financial issues or family issues, friendship issues. We don't know what's going to happen, but... If we know that God is faithful, God is reliable, he will keep his promises, that will hold us in great stead in the coming year. And then thirdly, I think we all need to know that God is able, that God is powerful, that God is able to do what he says he's going to do. Without those three things, I think we would be lost. And God is with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is his name? Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God is with us. What about God's promises? Clearly, the Apostle Paul wanted us to know that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. No matter how many promises God has made, I believe that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. That comforts me to see that answered and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And then what about God's ability? Is God able? Is God powerful? And my heart and my mind turn to those passages in the New Testament where it says that we as a church are not ashamed of the gospel, for we know it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that is to anyone. So we know that the gospel is power. Look at us. If God can save us, he can save anybody. The Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost for the express purpose of you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses all over the world. Here we are. We wonder what our mission is to bear witness to Jesus Christ and the power is there and the power of the Holy Spirit. So I find all of those needs to be met in the Lord Jesus. I think he's the one that we need to focus on and think about uh, this morning. And I believe that as we look at 1 Samuel 7, we'll see that that's, that's really true. That's what it's always been about. But the second question I ask is, what would you like God to know about you? What would you like God to know about you or about us? Well, In a way, it's kind of a foolish question because God already knows everything about us. He knows things about us that we don't know about ourselves. But in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote uh, maybe 20 or 25 books, he was interviewed uh, one day uh, for a magazine, and somebody asked him, which is your favorite book? And he says, well, I don't know as I have a favorite book, but he says, I do have a favorite book title. And my favorite book title is a book that he wrote called A Heart for God. What do I want God to know about me? I want him to know that even though I struggle with behaviors and attitudes that are not consistent with the gospel, I want him to know that he has my heart. David was a man after God's own heart. And he wasn't a perfect man, as we know. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, Jeremiah goes on to say that we we need to have God searching our hearts. And that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. God, search my heart. Know my, my anxious thoughts. We want God to search our hearts. And God will give us circumstances that will test the genuineness of our faith. He'll give us those circumstances, and we'll have an opportunity to find out what's in our heart. What would happen to a church that's filled with people who had a heart for God? Not a heart for religion, but a heart for God. The children of Israel in the Old Testament are object lessons to us. We can learn from them, from their mistakes, from how they recovered from their mistakes, and then we can adopt those principles that we find in Scripture. So as we go to 1 Samuel and chapter 7, at the very beginning of the chapter, we see that there were some men from a city or a village named Kiriath-Jerim. 
And they came and they took up the ark of the Lord. And they took it, that is the ark, to Abinadab's house on the hill. And they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. What is the ark of the Lord and what does that have to do with us? When we think of the word ark in the Old Testament, we quite often think about Noah's ark as if the ark was some kind of a boat. But this ark, the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony, the ark of God, it all means referring to the same thing. This ark is a box, not a boat. This ark of the covenant was designed by God to be built by men as a reminder to them that God was with them, that God was a promise maker and a promise keeper, and that God was powerful, he was able to do what he said he would do. All of those things are taught us in the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord. It is a box. It's made out of wood. It has four rings on the four sides. You put a pole through those rings. That ark was carried. It was carried with them when they tore the tabernacle down. That went with them along the way. It went with them into battle. It went with them everywhere they went. Because God wanted them to know that he was in their midst, that he was watching over them, that he had a covenant relationship with them. On the top of this box is a gold-plated lid called a mercy seat or a mercy cover. And once a year, a priest would come into the Holy of Holies, that's where the ark was kept, and sprinkle blood on the cover of the ark, reminding the people that the penalty for their sins had to be paid for by sacrifice. Not only that, but the Bible tells us that God ruled and was enthroned and reigned, not only in heaven, but at the ark of the covenant. So the Bible says in Psalm 99 that God is enthroned in between the cherubim. The cherubim were angelic creatures with wings. It was made out of gold. They were placed on either end of the ark on the lid. God is enthroned. God appears in a cloud, in a pillar of fire. God is with us. God is powerful. He's on the throne. He reigns. He's in control. He's a promise maker and a promise keeper. God wanted his people to know all of that. Well, here's the problem. Chapter 4 and verse 1, the Israelites went out to fight their arch enemy, the Philistines. As they fought, they were getting beaten back. They hadn't brought the ark with them. So they said, why don't you send somebody to go get the ark and bring it here so that we can win against our enemies? They were, in effect, taking God for granted. They were using the ark as some kind of rabbit's foot, some kind of good luck charm to bring them victory over the enemy. They were trying to manipulate and control God, and God knew that. And he says that, why didn't you consult me? And so the Ark of the Covenant was captured. And as it was captured, the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant to various cities in Philistine territory. And as they took the Ark to one city, 
They placed the ark in the temple of their god, Dagon. And overnight, there was the ark of the Lord and the, ark, and the god, Dagon, in the same temple, in the same room. And in the morning, they came in and looked in the room. Dagon had fallen flat on his face. So they waited one more day. The next day, the next morning, they came into the temple. They put Dagon back up on his feet. And when they came in the next morning, Dagon had not only fallen flat on his face, but his head was broken off and his arms were broken off. Without the Israelites' help, without God's people's help, God demonstrated his power by overthrowing this uh, foreign god. So what we have is the Philistines, and by extension, our culture, our surrounding culture, and you see it in television, that God is mocked and ridiculed and made fun of. The gospel, the Lord Jesus, the scriptures, Christians are made fun of by the surrounding culture, and they defy the living and true God because we have put our trust and our faith in the true and living God. But what the children of Israel did and what by extension we are in the danger of doing is taking God for granted, of using God for our purposes, for our ends. And so sometimes our prayer life is designed to manipulate and control God. We want God to do this, that. We want him to jump through this hoop. We want him to go over there and solve that problem. And then when that's taken care of, then we back off and God is a stranger to us again. So whether we defy God or whether we presume on the goodness of God, for us, it's very important that we look at this seriously and soberly. So by the time we get to chapter 6 and verse 19, 6, 19, and 20, and the, verse 20, and the men of Beth Shemesh, that is the ark went from the Philistines to the people of Israel, when the ark got with the people of Israel, the people of Shemesh said, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? And that's where we get to chapter 7. And as we go through this chapter, let me just focus on a point in verse 5. Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah. That's the title of my message this morning. Samuel was their leader. He called God's people together in a certain place, and he wanted to speak to them, a people who were in a repentant relationship with the Lord. And this is what we have in chapter 7. Now, your Bible probably says the word assemble or the word gather in verse 5. And in the New Testament, your Bible will say church, ecclesia. And that's what we call Lockwood Community Church. What is a church? It's an assembly. It's a gathering. So that the building itself, uh, a beautiful building, an expensive building, but the building itself is not sacred. What makes it sacred is the, fa sacred is the fact that we're here. God's people are here in this place. So this morning, this is our mizpah. And we have this gathering together. What are we going to do? Now, when I taught at Brunson High School, every once in a while, we would have an assembly. 
All it was is a gathering of hundreds of hormone uh, (laughs) raging teenagers marching to the gym for an educational assembly. And we would often say in teachers' meetings, who's going to be the leader of the assembly this week? And we hoped it was going to be good because a lot of times they weren't any good. And you know those kids, they, you know, they behave. So we're going down the hall, and I'm saying, oh, God, help, help us. You know, this, I liked assemblies, especially on Fridays, seventh hour. It was a great time, and, and particularly surprising assemblies where you didn't have any notice. So somebody came in, and all of a sudden over the intercom, and you're just starting seventh hour, and the principal says, we're going to have an assembly. Teachers, would you please dismiss your students? And we could hardly wait. I don't know whether the teachers or the students got out first. But, you know, that, that's what the church is. It's just simply a group of people who gather together at a certain place in a certain time. That's the definition of a church. That's where you go. That's who you are. And when somebody says, what's uh, the church for? Well, the answer is because the church is you people. The answer to that question is rephrased. You could say, well, what are you for? Because you're the church. So let's look at what happened at this church meeting. That's what it was. Let's look at the preparation time that goes into the church meeting. I don't know about you, but I find it challenging to get ready to come here. That one of the biggest battles in my Christian life is preparing my heart to come here. It's so important. We don't just get in the car and drive in. Now, when we were raising our children... We had to battle sometimes that. And one of the questions that often came up is, are we going to be late? Um, and who, who needs to get, get dressed and get ready? And there were all kinds of hindrances to us coming out to the meeting. Maybe some of you struggle with that. But we never asked the question, are we going to go today? If we were on vacation, that was another story. Sometimes we did, sometimes we didn't. But if we were here, that was the issue. So... What do we do to prepare our hearts to come to Mizpah, to a church meeting? Let's look at the passage, and let's see what happens. The ark of God, the ark of the Lord, stayed at Abinadab's house for a long time. Verse 2, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark had remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. The implication is, is that God himself was neglected for 20 years and by a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit or the preaching of Samuel, the church sort of came together and got its act together and mourned. We can't stand it, that God is not in our midst. You could personalize that. I can't stand it anymore that I don't sense the presence of God. What's wrong? What happened? You know, somebody said to me once, when God seems far away, guess who moved? So here they are, mourning and weeping, and Samuel calls them together, and here's what he says. Samuel said, verse 3, to the whole house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. 
What do we call that? We call that repentance. It's just as normal as the faith walk to repent. We're sinners saved by grace, and we're in continual need of the presence of God, the promises of God, and the power of God in our life. We have the same need today that we had when we came to Christ in the first place. In other words, a new believer grows in the same areas that he started. Becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, becoming a learner and a student and a follower of Jesus Christ at the beginning is the way we do it now. So we have a repentant people who prepared their hearts for what Samuel had to say to them. So, verse 4, the Israelites put away their Baals and their Ashtaroths. These are male and female deities or gods. The Baals are male. The Ashtaroths are female. So the personality cult of these gods, were, they were told to put these things away. And sometime I would like to do a Sunday school class on the biblical theology of idolatry. I would like to see what the Bible has to say from Genesis to Revelation about idolatry. I think it's going to be a very important subject. I'd like to study it. I'd like to have a Sunday school class on that. They did put them away, and they did serve the Lord only. If you fast forward a thousand years or so, and you go to the church at Thessalonica, that's exactly what they did when they heard the gospel. And it's on your bulletin. Those verses are on your bulletin. They heard the gospel, and how did they respond? They put away their idols to serve the living and true God. Now, let's look at verse 7. Or verse, uh, verse 6. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water, they poured it out before the Lord, and on that day they fasted, and there they confessed. Repentance that was real. They took it seriously. They made a concerted effort to confess their sins to each other, to God himself, so that the church meeting could function in health. Verse 5. Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for them. These people, when they came to a church meeting, they experienced the importance of intercession. That is, go between, between the Lord and his people. We have at Lockwood, and most churches do this, we have a, some kind of a prayer in which we intercede for people in our church, many of them struggling or hospitalized, but we have intercessors. At the end of the church service, we have prayer helpers who are available so that people can come and pray with them. They're intercessors. In small groups, at least in our small group, we have a certain time set aside where we bring up prayer requests and then we pray for people. We pray for issues. This is the normal part of church life, is to be an intercessor in a church. Now, here's one thing that we have to keep in mind. No matter who's standing up here interceding, Samuel himself is a type of the Lord Jesus. So we need to remember that the Lord said, that Paul 
said to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So our ability to pray for other people is directly tied to our relationship with Jesus Christ. He, in essence, is our mediator and our go-between. A holy God, a sinful people, and a go-between in between. One of the wonderful titles that God has given to his people is a priest. We are priests. We are believer priests. What is the role of a priest? The role of a priest is to talk to God about people and to talk to people about God. That's the simplest way I can think of to explain it. That's our role. That's our function. So in this meeting at Mizpah, that's what they did. Verse 7, when the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. And they said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Right in the midst of the church meeting, they became aware that they were threatened by their enemy. No church can stay healthy for very long if it's unaware of the dangers of the enemy all around us. There are Philistines right outside our church building. There are Philistines who are in your neighborhood, your school, your home. And these Philistines are there, and we need to be aware, alert, and vigilant. What does the word mispa mean in the Bible? These cities were given names for reasons. They meant something. Mizpah means watchtower. That's where they met. And that the church has to be on its guard, watching and alert to spiritual danger. Your leaders, part of their task is to watch out for danger in the church. Verse 10, uh, verse uh, 9. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb. And he offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. The sacrifice of the lamb is a reminder to the church when it meets. We, we do have a cross on the platform. And the cross doesn't save us. But the cross reminds us of who saved us. So that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he paid the penalty for our sins. He was a sacrifice given on our behalf to bring us to God. When the church meets, it needs to always remember how we got here and what keeps us here. The grace of God, the work of Christ on the cross. But that day the Lord thundered. I'm reading in verse 10, with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. I don't know about you, but one of the things I desperately need in my Christian life is courage, courage to fight. Not courage to fight in the wrong way, but courage to fight the spiritual warfare that's all around us. I don't think we should be unduly alarmed. I don't think we should think that there's a devil behind every tree and bush. On the other hand, I don't think we should take it for granted that because we're believers, because we belong to the Lord and we have a kind of a happy 
family fellowship here that there's no spiritual danger. There, there is. You know there is. It's all around us. We need to be courageous and alert. And then finally, verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he named the stone Ebenezer. And you may have asked yourself the question. We sang the song this morning, didn't we? about raising our Ebenezer. It's the stone of help. And where does our help come from? We look up to the hills, and we wonder about where we're going to get help. But the psalmist says, our help isn't up there. It's not up on the hills. Our help comes from the Lord. He's our Ebenezer stone. He's the one. He's our leader. He's our ark. He's our mediator. He's our power. He's our help. And we can go to him, and he's dependable and reliable, and he never will leave us or forsake us. We have a great leader in the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Samuel is a type. Now, what are the results of the church meeting? Well, the enemies in verse 13 were subdued. And the territory that the Philistines had taken was restored. And at the end of verse 14, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Wouldn't those be great outcomes for us in 2012? The restoration of our lives. The peace that passes understanding. And victories, spiritual victories as we face the new year. I trust that this chapter would be sort of a source of meditation uh, for you, maybe this week. That you might look over that again and ask the Lord what there might be new or different in there for you. I know it spoke to my heart. I meditated on it for a long time. And I'm so grateful to God for pointing it out to me and for emphasizing these things in my life. Well, we we are going to sing and we're going to leave in a few minutes, but... uh, I wanted to challenge us this morning that in our church meetings, the kinds of things that make for healthy, vibrant churches are found right here in this chapter, tucked away in the Old Testament. Dan, if you could come up and lead us now in a song.